good morning, everybody. How are you guys feeling? Good, good. I came in this morning with a little bit of, I had extra pep in my step. You know, I know uh, Rob was celebrating the warmness we've had. I'm today celebrating the fact that uh, the last two days I've been able to wear a hoodie for the first time in six months and had a beanie on and everything this morning. I was ready to roll. Um, it's great to be with you um, today and to, to be able to, to continue uh, this morning in our Exodus uh, series. So we've been in this for, for, for a bit now, um, and it's, it's just been, for me, I don't know about you, but for me, you know, it's just been so exciting. Uh, and rewarding for us as a church family to be able uh, to dig into one of the most foundational stories in all of Scripture. And even though it's taken us a bit to kind of get through uh, this story, let's be honest, like the, the reason is because there's just so much to unpack. Right? In fact, we're, we're, we're like skipping through. We could, we could spend literally like, like just months on, and months on end going through all of the details uh, of the Exodus story. Uh, but our goal in looking at this story is not just uh, to, 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 to like tell it and to make sure we have all of our details straight, but, but our goal as we look at one of the most critical moments in the history of our faith uh, is to see how this story, uh, the, the Exodus story, uh, connects with our story. Right, to see ourselves and our faith journey uh, in what happened uh, to the people of this story, what they experienced. Because the truth is that when you look at the book of Exodus, uh, let's be honest, like there's a lot of, we'll say, fantastical kind of elements that happen, right? From, from the calling of Moses to God's confrontation and the plagues in Egypt, the story we looked at last week with the parting of the sea, right? It's really easy to get uh, uh, caught up and get lost in all of these otherworldly elements. I mean, for crying out loud, we've got the audible voice of God, uh, right? We've got... Uh, like pillars of fire in the sky. Uh, we've got uh, literal oceans, just like Bruce Almighty, just like and, uh, people walking through. And it's like, in all of this extravagance, it's so easy to miss the simple, uh, life-changing, creation-altering truth that cuts right through this story, right to you and I today. See, the, the reality is that the, the God at work in Exodus is the same God at work today in 2023. Right? The same God who moved heaven and earth to save this beaten, broken nation of slaves is the same God who moves heaven and earth today to save you and your family and your friends. What God did for the Hebrew people some 3,000 years ago is the same thing he's doing for us today. See, the Exodus is not just a story about what God did in the distant past. The Exodus is a story about the ongoing way God is at work in our world. God continues to call people into meaningful lives. God continues to fight for people the world would rather discard. He continues to save through extraordinary circumstances and he continues to uphold his people, his community. So the question we have to wrestle with is how will we join him? How will we get involved in what God is doing? And so today uh, we're going to lean into not just how this has happened, but why this happens. Why God chooses to work in the way that he does. And to do that, we need to talk about mountains. 
Mountains, yep, the big rock formations. I don't know if you remember the first time that you uh, saw actual mountains. Uh, you know, someone born and raised in central Indiana. That wasn't really part of my story for a long time. Um, you know, there's not really a whole lot of uh, towering structures uh, in the flat plains of central Indiana. Um, and I you know we, we drove through the Appalachians a few times growing up, but let's be honest, like, beautiful area, no, 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 dis- disrespect intended, but... Appalachians, it, they're big hills, right? There's still, there's still trees and green stuff on top of everything. Like, beautiful, beautiful area, but big hills. Right, in August uh, 2012, I took, uh, for the first time, I took a trip out to Denver, uh, Colorado, to visit uh, a friend of mine. And I don't know if you've ever uh, been to Denver, but you might be thinking, like, Denver, the Mile High City. Surely it must be up in the mountains. You get a pretty up-close look. But actually, no, it's not. Uh, Denver is at the edge of the foothills, so the city itself is actually really flat. But immediately west of Denver, the real mountains begin. Right? I remember flying in uh, to the, the, the Denver International Airport uh, and, and just being uh, for, surrounded for, like, like, it doesn't matter where you look, just beyond the horizon, there's just these towering structures. I spent about a week, uh, they're just driving around between Denver and Boulder down to Colorado Springs the whole time, just, how do people get anything done with all of this, this just like staring at you, just completely overwhelmed and inspired and, and, and kind of terrified a little bit. Because right? the first time you see something that big, it's a little unnerving, isn't it? See, mountains have an extraordinary impact, uh, not just on like culture or not just on like, like transportation and that sort of thing, but has an extraordinary impact on our cultural imagination. All right, for example, let's look, at, let's look at a couple. First one you're probably really familiar with, Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore. If you didn't know, uh, Mount Rushmore in the middle of nowhere in South Dakota, uh, right? There's this massive sculpture of four of the most influential presidents in U.S. history. Uh, we got Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, and Lincoln. All right, but for our purposes this morning, uh, the interesting thing about Mount Rushmore is not so much what the, the four actual faces inscribed on the side of this mountain, uh, but what the act of inscribing them represents. Right, because I guarantee you, like, when you hear people talk about Mount Rushmore, they're not talking about a rock formation in Keystone, South Dakota. Right, rather, they're talking about the, this process of immortalizing the most influential and decorated people within a given area of expertise. Right, people all the time ask the question, uh, who's on the Mount Rushmore of everything from NFL quarterbacks to science fiction authors to Korean boy bands to country music stars to barbecue chefs in Texas? And now, let's be honest, the last one sounds interesting, and I'm, I'm totally here for that, uh, that conversation. But Mount Rushmore uh, represents this, this cultural inclination we have to revere and celebrate great accomplishment, right? to immortalize our heroes and to celebrate the accolades of their achievements. Now, the second one might look a little unfamiliar. It's an older story, uh, but it's a story that turns out is just as prominent in our world and the way we think about it. This is Mount Olympus, taken from the Aegean Sea, and you can kind of see the the, the clouds kind of forming at the top there, right? This little circle, uh, and and so this this is interesting. This is the so this is obviously this is the fabled home of the Greek pantheon. 
right, for the ancient Greeks uh, and then the Romans after them, beyond the veil of these clouds that form at the top of Mount Olympus is a realm that is unreachable and uncorruptible by simple mortals like you and I. And it's within this realm that the gods reside. The natural world, your, your everyday life, my everyday life, uh, actually is, just, is, this, is constantly caught up in these tensions uh, between these plots and these ploys with, that these gods play with one another for power, influence, and control. You and I, we're simple uh, puppets or pieces at their, disposable, or their, at their disposal rather, uh, in their bids to control and dominate one another. See, the interesting thing for our purposes today is that more often than not, uh, the mental pictures we create, the projections of what the supernatural looks like, of what God looks like in, in his realm, what that looks like comes more from here, comes more from Olympus than it does here. Right? How often have you heard uh, God described uh, as this older bearded man uh, with lightning bolts? Right? Or how often have you heard of heaven described as the city in the clouds? How often uh, have, you, have you at one point or another been taught that, that God it was some stoic, distant, or maybe even angry being that somehow needed to be appeased? Those ideas don't come from here. They come from here. See, in the old Greek stories, uh, Zeus was this capricious being and you never really knew where you stood with him until uh, he finally unleashed his wrath against you. So your only play was to make sure you were on his good side at all times. In other legends, we have Greek gods like Aphrodite, who is this, this jealous god, who she withholds her tears and her affection until she finally finds someone beautiful enough, deserving enough to receive them. You also have stories like Apollo and Ares, these, these war-making gods who, who thrive on bloodshed and violence, power and domination. Out of all of these gods, all of their stories, their conquests, and their character, our God, the God we worship, the God we see in the Exodus story, says definitively, I have nothing to do with that. So in the story of Exodus, uh, we, we don't see this story about immortalizing great deeds or immortalizing human achievement. It's not about appeasing a, a fickle or an unstable God. What is it about? Right? Who is this God that we encounter in Exodus? And how is he different than any other God-type being that we've heard of? Well, we actually find the answer to that question at the mountain we're going to focus on today. Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Because you see, what happens at Sinai is, is so groundbreaking. It's so unique that it completely changes our categories of description. Here we see God. More specifically, we see the way that God relates to human beings. We see God act in ways that no other deity, no other faith system had ever claimed before. And it all centers around this idea of covenant. Now, now, covenant isn't a word that we come across often in our world. It's not a word in common usage uh, as we would describe it. In fact, the last time that you ran into covenant was probably when you were looking through your homeowner's papers. And, you're like, and so I promise this is much less painful, 
much pain, more painless. Uh, this is not, we're not talking about homeowners covenants and anything like that. Uh, covenant uh, is this idea of partnership, of working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. And so God at Sinai establishes this covenant. It's no longer just I am up here and you have to meet me where I am. It's this partnership that God comes into a relationship with his people. There are promises on both sides. And so uh, the story we're going to pick up is in, is in Exodus 19. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and, and flip there. You have that on, the, on your uh, app or on our church app. We've got that opened for you. Um, but I, I want to fill in some backstory from, from last week to this week. So uh, last week, because uh, a lot happens kind of in between there. So last week we looked at the crossing of the Red Sea, right? This miraculous encounter where, where Pharaoh and this grand Egyptian army were bearing down on the entire nation of Israel. All right, and everything looked hopeless, right? They were cornered. They had the, the, the army on one side, the sea on the other. It seemed like everything was lost, but God intervenes. God parts the sea and the entire nation of Israel crosses on dry land. God leads the people to safety and he defeats their enemies. But that was just the start of the story. That's not where our story ends. See, from there, God leads the people deep into the wilderness. And you would think at this point, after everything that has happened thus far in the the, the story of the Exodus, that everyone is getting on board with what God is doing. Right After everything we've seen with all the plagues, all the, all the, the stuff, and all the fire from the sky, and the, 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 the literal ocean, like, it's okay, God, like, you've done enough, we get it, we're on board, sure, whatever you say goes. But that's not what the people do. Interestingly enough, the people of Israel are just like you and me. See, along the way, their story between the Red Sea and Sinai is this constant back and forth, this up and down. They have good days and bad days. Things are going great, but as soon as there's any kind of resistance, any kind of trouble, it's, God, what have you gotten us into? How could you? What could you possibly do? How could you possibly fix this? Yet through all of that, every step along the way, God gives them everything they need. God provides water miraculously in the wilderness where there is no water. God provides meat in the form of these, these massive clouds of quail, enough to feed 600,000 people, or excuse me, 600,000 men plus women and children, so a lot more than that. And God provides this manna, right, this mystical bread that literally comes out of the air to, to sustain and to provide for them. And all of that, all of that to get them to where we are today in Exodus 19. This whole journey has led us to this moment. And we're going to pick it up in verse 1. It says this. It says, On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from uh, Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert at the front of the mountain. Verse 3, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. You have seen what I've done for you, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. See, this is significant, uh, because uh, up to this point in the story, God has asked nothing of the Israelites. 
God has saved them because that's what God does. God saves. The people didn't have to do anything to make themselves worthy of being saved. They didn't have to convince God that he should do something. God saved them, and now God is going to invite them into something truly remarkable. Verse 5. This is God speaking to Moses. He says, this is the message you're supposed to give the Israelites. Tell them, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will forever be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. There's that word again. Covenant, it's this partnership, right? This agreement between two sides to work together. Uh, there are promises given uh, on both sides. You do this, I'll do this, and together we'll do something remarkable. So, so let's kind of break this down. What is the agreement? What is the covenant kind of put forward? Well, God sets out uh, the terms for Israel at first. If you obey me fully... Right, so uh, God is going to set out this set of expectations, this way of ordering their lives. Uh, but remember, this has nothing to do with God saving them because God has already done that. This is about what comes after. This is about the life that comes after you have been saved. So God tells them that if they will fo- obey him fully, here's what you get out of this then. You will be my treasured possession. You will have unique access and standing with the creator of the universe, the way everyone else in in the world has to worry about things like safety and security, provision. You won't have to worry about any of that because you will be intimately connected with the source of where all of that comes from. And all of this for a purpose, a goal together, right? That you would be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, a priest is a representative. Right? It's one appointed by God or in other faith systems, other gods. Uh, it's a priest uh, is, is a representative uh, designated to be a messenger and a mediator between the people and the deity. Right? So they represent God or the, the, their particular gods before the people, and then they represent the people before God or the other gods. So what God here is inviting the entire nation of Israel to be, all of the Hebrew people, he's inviting them to be his representatives, to take his message, his goodness, and his glory, and to then invite their neighbors to bring everyone else into the fold of God's good mission. That's what heck of a deal, right? That's awesome. That's why in verse 8, as soon as Moses gives the, the, this uh, covenant to the people, uh, and uh, we see this, the people all respond together. We'll do everything the Lord has said. Absolutely, God. Like, oh, we'll do that in a heartbeat. Uh, after everything we've seen, here we go. We're on board. But that's not the end of God's promise. There's actually a second promise given to the nation of Israel in this, in this story. We see this in verse 9. It starts in verse 9. Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so the people will hear me speaking with you and then be able, and then will always put their trust in you. Moses again told the people what, what they had said. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people 
and today and tell them to consecrate themselves today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready for the third day because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Right, how many, think of your own story, your own life. How many times have you thought to yourself, and if I could just see God, Right, God, if you could just give me a little bit of a, like a bigger picture of what's going on, if you could just let me in on what you're doing, it'd be a lot easier to trust you. Right, well, that's, that's the promise that the Lord is giving the entire nation here. Right? He, he's promising to, to, to come to show them the bigger picture, uh, to show them who he is as the creator of the universe, the foundation of existence, uh, being, uh, the, the, uh, a being whose voice creates physical reality, how the source of life, love, and goodness, true spirit of true spirit, And now he's basically saying that he's coming to dinner. This, as you would imagine, causes quite a stir, right? The camp goes into a complete frenzy. Everybody in Israel now is, or everybody in the nation is just scrambling, right? Think of you and your house when you have a very important guest coming over and you've got to prepare and and clean. And and this is going on because God is now on, has said, I am on my way. The scene is more overwhelming. When God finally arrives, it's more overwhelming than scriptures can possibly convey. Right? God actually shows up in verse 16. Right? On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled and Moses led the people out of camp uh, to meet with God. They stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up uh, like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. In some of your translations, it might actually throw this little bit on the end of that. It says Moses spoke and then God answered him with thunder. Right, this scene is grand. It's over the top. It's beyond immense, completely staggering. Uh, but just like everything that happened in Egypt at the Red Sea, uh, with all of these miracles that have happened that have been brought that have brought the Israelites to this place, it's easy to get caught up in all of that and to miss this simple truth at the heart of it. But it's this truth. It's this truth that will change everything about your life and your family, and your story now, and the truth at the heart of this episode in our story is this, that God's presence is now among his people. God's presence is here. This is so significant. Don't miss this. God consecrates the covenant, right? So he says, obey me, uh, and you will be my treasured possession. Uh, what does it mean to be God's treasured possession? It means you ha- now have direct access to God's presence. This is the very thing that we as humanity, that we lost in our rebellion at the garden. It, what we lost in the beginning, God starts to restore here at Sinai. God is saying uh, resoundingly that he's not some distant celestial being unconcerned with what's going on in our world. God is right here in front of you. 
God is not some small, short-sighted deity caught up in the whims and desires of human beings. God shakes mountains with his presence. And his voice thunders. And God has made that presence available to you. See, God speaks to all the people of Israel. And then he calls Moses and Aaron to join him at the top of that mountain. And at the beginning of Exodus 20, we have what is one of the most sacred, precious moments in the history of our faith, in the history of the human story. We have uh, the giving of the law, or you and I know it better as the Ten Commandments. Right? For the first time in human history, the word of God is given to God's people. And it's all about how God is going to work in them and how God is going to work through them and how God is going to move them forward to do something remarkable. Now, there are a number of ways uh, to understand. I know like if you've had any experience with, with our faith, the Ten Commandments right, is one of the first things we all learn. And there's a bunch of ways that we can understand what's happening here. Uh, but for our purposes today, I just want to give you a simple way of looking at what God is trying to do through this moment, what he's trying to do through the commandments. See, when you, we've got the ten, uh, the, the big ten, not the football one, the, you know, the, the ones that actually... But, the big ten, we kind of like we can break these down in kind of two groups to help understand a little bit better what's going on. See, first we've got the first four, right? God says, "Have no other gods before me. Don't make idols. Don't misuse or abuse the name of God. Honor the Sabbath." These four are all about how God is working on our hearts, how God is reorienting our heart, reorienting our soul. How He is teaching the people. He's teaching the people here how to cut out the junk that gets in the way between a relationship with him. He's teaching them how, how to establish God as the first priority. And then the next set, uh, commandments 6 through 10, are all about how God is working on, on our habits. Specifically, uh, commandments 5 and 10 are all about how God is working on their habits as they, as they um, affect others and how they affect the community. Right, this is what Jesus is referring to uh, a little bit later when he's asked what's the greatest commandment. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. First four, love your neighbor as yourself. The last six. And the point of all of this, the point of all of this is, is that God has saved you and God's presence is with you. Now what will you do in light of it? How will you display that presence to the world? See, what follows is this detailed set of instructions of how uh, the people of Israel, how they are supposed to steward God's presence. There's instructions for their community, how they're supposed to interact with one another, and there's instructions for building this this tent uh, where they can meet with God face-to-face, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And, and all of these instructions are steeped uh, with this uh, very rich symbology and imagery that all calls back to the Garden of Eden. It calls back as a reminder of two things. Number one, it's a reminder of what we once enjoyed. It's a reminder of the peace and the harmony that existed between God and humanity in the beginning. And it's also a reminder of what we're working toward. Right? It's a reminder of the restoration of all things. 
that God is, that God is actively doing uh, in their world as he's doing in ours. Now, I think we can all agree if we step back and kind of take off our, our like, uh, 2023 lenses and just kind of look at this unbiasedly, that this scene and everything that's happening here is completely overwhelming. Completely. All right, see, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. Right, you had a quiet life in Egypt. Yeah, it, it, w- it wasn't the best, but it was predictable. Right, you're, you're, you're not quote-unquote country people at all. Like, you're not okay with hubbub and whatnot. You're, you just want to, like, live your life and do your thing, and you've got your thing, you've got your... It's like, and then all of a sudden, God and these two dudes, Moses and Aaron, show up, and they turn everything on their head. There's all these crazy plagues. There's all these, like, like fire in the sky and oceans, you know, parting. And, and, and then God takes you from everything that you've known and brings you to the one place that you never thought about going, Right, the wilderness, like not like not like this nice quiet Airbnb retreat, but like the actual wilderness where there's no protection, no security, no certainty of anything uh, that we could have going forward. And he takes you here, and your quiet city life is now replaced with mountains that are on fire and blasting trumpets and a voice that sounds like thunder. How would you react? My bet is that you would react exactly like the people did at the end of Exodus 20. We see this here in verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning, and they heard the trumpets, and they saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, hey, Moses, you speak to us yourself. You, you do all the talking. Don't let God speak to us or we will certainly die. And we can totally understand that fear, that uncertainty. But look at Moses' uh, encouragement to the people. Don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God, the reverence that you have for this being that is inviting you into this, this history-altering covenant will keep you focused on what you're trying to do, will keep you from sinning, will keep you on mission. So why is this little interlude interesting? Well, I'm glad you asked, uh, because it just so happens uh, that if you look forward, if you fast forward about 1,200 years uh, in history, you get to the life uh, of Jesus. Right, and an interesting story comes out of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, it's included in three of the four Gospels. Uh, we're going to look at it as it occurs in the, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, but as we read this story from Matthew, you have to keep in mind everything that we've seen in Exodus, everything that we've seen at Mount Sinai. This story comes from Matthew uh, chapter 17, and it starts like this. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And just uh, then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus. See, just like the Israelites in Exodus, Peter, James, and John are led to a mountain to meet with God. And as the presence of God invades their reality, the scene is completely overwhelming. 
And Peter, being the go-getter type, tries to make sense. He tries to bring some order into the chaos around him. Uh, this is a scene that he can't possibly control. It's like, you know, God, can we just can we build some tents? Can we make this a little bit more manageable? This is a little bit much. But while Peter was still speaking, in verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Does any of this sound familiar? You know, we have, on one hand, we've got the people of God in Exodus. And here in Matthew, we've got the earliest followers of Jesus. Right, there's this fantastic scene where the divine presence appears right in front of them. There's a mountain, there's smoke, there's light, there's a voice that thunders. And listen to this encouragement even that Jesus gives the disciples in verse 8. Uh, after all of the overwhelmingness, so they're sitting face down terrified. Jesus came, to tuck, came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Now, do you think it's an accident that the details of those two stories line up? It goes deeper than that. Right As Jesus' ministry progressed, time and time again, he began to foreshadow uh, events that would eventually lead to his death on the cross. But what's interesting is that as he foreshadows his coming death, he continues to talk about then a promised return after that death three days later. In fact, after his death, a group of women uh, close to Jesus went out uh, to his tomb with spices and herbs as a way of honoring Jesus, of honoring his life. See, Jesus had died on a Friday afternoon, and after Friday, uh, Saturday is the day that Jews observe Sabbath, and there's just no way that a good uh, practicing Jew would be seen anywhere near a graveyard on Sabbath. It just wasn't appropriate. So uh, after Sabbath, Sunday morning, they, they decide that now is the best time to go and honor Jesus, and so as these women and make their way to the place where they laid Jesus to rest, they're suddenly met by two messengers. Two messengers that gave them the most spectacular news. Luke 24, verse 6, this is what they tell him. He said, he is not here. He is risen. And while he was still with you in Galilee, or remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered uh, over to the hands of sinners to be crucified and on the third day be raised again. So the question is, why the emphasis on the third day? Remember Sinai. Right, God's promised relationship with his people was finally realized. And then on the third day, God's very presence came to be with his people. See, what started at Sinai was now perfected in Jesus. What started as a a love and a commitment, uh, a a covenant etched in stone was now engraved through nail-pierced hands in the flesh of the one who was both God and man. God saved us. And now through Jesus, God is with us forever. See, this is the story all over the scriptures. Once you see how everything lines up again and again and again, it's just this echo. God saved us and now God is with us. And now you and I have to wrestle with this question of how will we live in light of that? God is with us.
And what can we do together? My, my, my challenge for you this morning is that if you've never had this opportunity where you can fully realize, uh, you've fully committed to what this means to walk with God, to make this story your story and your family's story, my prayer uh, and challenge this morning is that you don't leave here until you've had a conversation with someone that can help you unpack that can help you take steps to follow this God, to be a part of his mission in the world, and to just to see the incredible things he can do in your life, in your family's life. We're going to have an opportunity to pray, and then we're going to, ta- we're going to step forward uh, into that uh, relationship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for this moment uh, that we have uh, to, to, to focus on your story, focus on the story that you began so long ago and continue to tell in our world today. God, the remarkable thing about a story like this is that uh, you can use us in spite of everything that we do to get in your way, in spite of our failing trust and our, our faltering faith. God, you keep working. You keep calling, you keep saving, you keep restoring and renewing, and the promise is that will continue until all things are as you desire them to be. And so God, we just ask uh, for clear eyes this week. We ask for ways to see the way that you're at work in, the pe- in our lives and in the people around us that we can call attention and notice uh, to those and that we can help others see the way that you are loving all of us back to life. God, we're so thankful for this new covenant in Jesus, in his body, in his blood that opens the way for life. We love you, God. We trust you. And we pray all this in the name of your Son and our Savior.